Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of March 2019 and this is episode 103. On today's programme, doctoral candidate Jane Clark, studying at the University of Manchester, discusses her research into the impact of military service for women who served in uniform during the First World War. I spoke to Jane from her home in Liverpool. Hi Jane, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to talk about your PhD on women's experience of serving in the auxiliary corps in the First World War and what what impact this service had on them after the Great War. Can you start by telling us about how you became interested in this subject and ended up doing it as a PhD? Yeah, so I did my undergrad uh, degree at the University of Cambridge and my master's degree there as well. And then basically this PhD uh, was already a defined project. So it was a, it was set up as a collaborative doctoral awards PhD, which means basically it's when a university partners with a museum or an art gallery or something like that. And they basically work together. Um, and it's usually when they have an archive or they have a specific project in mind that they'd like a PhD student to come and work on. So the Imperial War Museum basically had this archive of uh, journals of female veteran associations from the interwar period, and no one has really looked at them in any great depth. So they set up this PhD project, which I then applied for uh, and, and got accepted. So that's how I kind of came to do it. But I think I've always been interested in women's history so I've always kind of done for my undergraduate dissertation my master's dissertation I did I did uh, I looked at women's history my undergrad dissertation I looked at American women in the 1950s and then for my master's degree I looked at labor women from the 1920s so I was attracted to this project because it was kind of women's history but also kind of challenging a sort of dominant narrative about women in the interwar period as well. So you've already touched on this briefly but why do you think this study is needed? So I think that women in the First World War is a huge area of study and lots of people have looked at this debate, you know, to what extent did women's experiences in the First World War change their lives afterwards. But I think historians have tended to look at munitions workers, nurses, um, women in the military have not really been looked at as a kind of major area of study. And usually when I when I talk to other academics about my research, people are quite surprised that women actually did serve in the military in the First World War. They usually think that this was a kind of later development that came with the Second World War. So I think that, that you know, and they're a really fascinating group and I think they can really female veterans can really shed light not only on or shed light on another another area of experience in the first world war another focus in terms of impact in the first world war and also uh, i think these female veterans tell us a lot about women's lives in the interwar periods as well um and as i've said no one's really looked at them in any great depth so it's a kind of new ish area of study i guess so before we start to get into the detail of your um phd let's try and establish some background. Can you give us an indication of the scale and nature of female service in the auxiliary corps in the First World War? 
Yeah, so there were three women's auxiliary corps in the First World War. The first one to be established was the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, which was later renamed as Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps. And there were around 50,000 women who worked in this uh, group during the war. They worked as cooks, cleaners, drivers, clerks, kind of communication roles. And they were basically, uh, this service was established to basically free up men who could then go on to fight in the on the front line in the trenches. So these women's services were kind of set up initially to solve a kind of labor shortage in terms of in terms of the army. And the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps were based both in Britain and in France. They were made up primarily of, well, both working class and middle class women. Then after that, so they were set up in 1917. The second service to be set up was the Women's Royal Naval Service. They were set up in around November 1917. The Around five and a half thousand women who worked for the Women's Royal Naval Service during the war. And again, they were working in administrative clerical roles in Britain, in kind of major port towns. And they, again, were were set up to free up naval personnel who could then go on to serve on the front line. They, women who worked in the Women's or Naval Service were prevented from serving on board naval ships. So they were confined to shore-based roles in Britain. The third service to be set up was the Women's Royal Air Force. This was established in 1918, April 1918. And there were around 32,000 women who served with this service during the First World War. And again, similar roles, administrative clerical workers, also some mechanical work. Uh, they worked to kind of repair aircraft, for example. So that was the kind of, so yeah, they were the, they were the three women's services during the First World War. So obviously your PhD focuses on what happened to these um, veterans after the First World War. Now they established a number of um, old comrades association. Why did they form these organisations and what was the function of these um, bodies that they created? So these service, these organisations were formed primarily to support the needs of ex-service women after demobilisation. So women were demobilised uh, around 19, from basically from 1918 to 1920, and these organisations were set up to provide a practical support for women in the interwar period. So the organisations would would help women to try and find employment. So the journals of these associations that I'm looking at as part of my research. Uh, they often ran a, a feature that was kind of, you know, jobs vacant. So they would advertise jobs for women. And these could range from kind of domestic jobs or uh, business positions, clerical positions. So there was definitely a practical function function there in trying to aid women to get employment after um after the end of the war. They also worked closely with an organisation called the Overseas Settlement of British Women, sorry, the Overseas Settlement for British Women, which encouraged and aided women who wanted to migrate after the end of the war. So it was a big drive after 1918 uh, to try and encourage women to move to the former colonies such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and obviously these countries were crying out for female labour. So the Old Comrades Associations really worked with this organisation to advertise uh, emigration, to try and encourage women to go. They would advertise job opportunities in these countries. But the Old Comrades Associations also had uh, benevolent funds. So they had a charitable function. Members contributed to these charitable funds through their subscriptions, the organisations. And then members themselves could apply to this fund in times of hardship. So, for example, if they were unemployed or if their husband was unemployed or they needed money to start up, say, a new business or they needed money to help them uh, emigrate, they could apply to this fund and they would they would get some charitable aid. But I think 
the organisations really had a practical function. But I think the key, one of the key functions of these these organisations was really to kind of bring women back together after the end of the war. And I think for women, this experience of serving in the military corps had been really fundamental and they'd formed really strong friendships and really kind of key relationships that many women were reluctant to abandon after 1918. So by joining these organisations, these women could reunite, come back together um, they could join local branches and these would arrange things like whist drives, fancy dress parties, tea parties, days out. And there, there was a real, real strong sort of social aspect to these organisations. And you can see in the letters that women wrote into the journals or the reports of these local branches, you know, women would get together and they would talk about how much they'd laughed and they'd reminisced about the war. So there was clearly a real kind of emotional, social, undercurrent to these organisations that was really important to women. And, you know, they would have reunion dinners every year in which they would all come together again and they would hire out a, a hotel in London. It would be a really grand occasion. They would all come back together and they would make speeches and they would kind of reminisce again on their wartime service, talk about how significant their time during the war had been. So, again, I think there was obviously a really practical dimension but also a really important social aspect to these organisations. How were these organisations um, greeted by the uh, women's husbands and their partners uh, when they were established and, and when women started attending them in the 1920s and 1930s? I think that, interestingly, interestingly a lot of these former service women went on to marry service men. So it's clear that you know they may have, may have met their future husbands during their time in the service. And I think because there was that really strong veteran culture for service men, I get the sense that for many women, their husbands were quite accepting of this. And they, you know, they understood that joining a veteran association was part of being a, a, a veteran. Um, I've not come across any overt hostility or, you know, I mean, even if there was, these women are not talking about that in the context of, of these journals. You don't get the sense of the hostility. I mean, a lot of these women were you know, did remain single as well. So there's, there's that aspect to it. You know, a lot of, a lot of these women didn't marry, they, they stayed single. Um, but I think, you know, there is, a, there is also evidence that these women were bringing their husbands along to reunion dinners or along to local branch meetings. Even women, there's evidence that they brought their children along um, to, to outings, to days out and things like that. So it's clearly, you know, a part of their a part of their everyday life, a part of their family life as well. It's not just something that is for them. They're clearly kind of involving their families more broadly. I mean, there may have been hostility. As I say, it's not coming through in the in the in the archives that I'm I'm looking at. Did you find um, that they established organisations in Ireland or the Republic or the Irish Free State as it became in after 1923? Yes, yes. So that's that's a really interesting point. So particularly for the, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, there's a, a branch in Ireland that, that seems quite active and, and, and is very kind of uh, involved with the, with the national organisation as a whole. So they write in to the journals to give kind of updates on, on what their members are doing and their reunion dinners, their involvement in uh, local armistice and national armistice celebrations. You don't get the sense that there's any kind of uh, tensions there in terms of having that Irish branch, obviously after 1921. But 
it does kind of that that branch becomes less and less active as the kind of interwar period goes on i'm not sure whether the branch itself declines in membership or whether it kind of breaks away from the sort of you know the national comrades associations but you tend to get kind of towards the end of the 1920s less and less information about that particular branch so whether you know there is a kind of uncomfortable kind of tension there with being part of this british national association you know that could that could possibly have been the case so when we look at their service in uniform in a more in a broader context what impact did that have on women after the armistice i think it really fundamentally changed how women thought about themselves i mean clearly there was a huge pushback in the interwar period against women who'd served either you know in the factories as as nurses in them in the military there was that really dominant uh, conservative cultural discourse that encouraged women to go back to the home, back to the family, to give up their wartime lives and to accept that, you know, their job now was to be in the home and to raise a family. And I think these associations proved that women were pushing back against that. You know, these organisations gave women a space to assert their identity as veterans for them. They thought of themselves, despite the fact that they had not been on the front line, they had not, they, you know, they hadn't really been in, in, in near an area of active conflict. They thought of themselves very, very strongly as being part of the military, and they felt that identity. They felt that continuing relationship, not only with each other, but also to either the, the army, the navy, the air force. You know, they keep in contact with these military forces throughout the 1920s and the 1930s. They invite military they invite former servicemen to the reunion dinners they constantly print updates about new kind of military developments and so it's clear that they you know they may have had a family they may have been married they might have had children but this identity of you know they clearly thought of themselves as female veterans and that was really really important to them and those relationships really sustained them and really kind of help them to adjust to peacetime conditions. It's clear that a lot of these women struggled to adjust to life after 1918. You know, there's lots of letters written into the journals about how, you know, civilian life was disappointing after the excitement, after the, you know, the kind of rush of adventure and everything else that came with military service for these women. That had all gone after 1918. And that was was a difficult adjustment for many women. Yet becoming a member of these organisations meant that they could not only lay claim to their identities as service women once again, but also reminisce about their wartime service, also kind of, you know, share memories, etc. So I think that, yeah, it really shaped their self-identities primarily. And did it have any impact on their political consciousness? There's a few examples that I've picked up on um, in my research about that relationship between the kind of experience of military service and political involvement. One of the most interesting, I think, is the involvement of ex-servicemen in the general strike of May 1926. So unsurprisingly, a lot of these members, a lot of the women that joined the old comrades associations were middle class, I think probably because the subscription rates were quite high. Also, I think middle-class women had the free time to arrange social activities and participate fully in the organisations. So unsurprisingly, when the general strike was called in May 1926, a lot of the Old Comrades Association members were against the strike. They did not support uh, the workers' demands. 
And it's really interesting because the Organization for the Maintenance of Supplies, which was the main strike-breaking organization, actively recruited in these associations for ex-servicemen to join as strike-breaking volunteers. And ex-servicemen responded very enthusiastically to this. And they thought the way they speak about the general strike, the way they speak about their volunteer work, it's clear that they're connecting it to their wartime service. So they speak about the strike as another national emergency. And they constantly talk about how it's their duty and it's their, um, you know, they need to kind of rally once again and come and come to the rescue of the country and to, and to help out once again. And I think, so I think they were really, you know, they were really keen to set, to feel that sense of being needed again, to feel that kind of, and, you know, they, they were doing, in, in a sense, a lot of the work that they had done during the war. So a lot of the women who volunteered during the strike were, you know, they were worked as drivers or they, you know, they kind of worked as, worked in kind of post offices, you know, they were doing similar work. So I think that that experience of wartime service really kind of uh, sort of encouraged them to participate in, in political events like that in a way that, you know, could help them, would remind them of military service. And I think another example of this is in a slightly different way. So the Women's Royal Naval Service Old Comrades Association becomes really involved in the League of Nations Union in the interwar period, which is initially really surprising, obviously, because this association was set up to celebrate the memory of women's wartime service. So their involvement with a pacifist organization doesn't seem to make sense initially. But it's interesting because when they kind of start to become involved with the League of Nations Union, so they have, there's a delegate group from the Women's or Naval Service or Comrades Association that goes along to the Women's Advisory Council of the League of Nations Union, which was kind of set up to help engage women in the work of the League of Nations, the pacifist campaigning. And they sort of become involved in this as the sort of discourse shifts in the kind of 1930s as we get away from this idea of the kind of war as a, a glorious victory and a kind of, you know, heroic triumph towards a kind of reassessment of the war as a as a traumatic experience. And I think these women, while celebrating their own involvement in the war, also start to talk about how they encountered service men who had maybe died or were injured and how really they start to acknowledge the fact that, well, whilst we loved our time in the service, obviously it was a horrific experience for millions of people. Therefore, we have a responsibility to make sure that this never happens again. And I think they also see it again as, as an extension of that, that idea of duty, that idea of service, working for the national interest. So you get a big group of ex-service women who begin to become really, really involved in, in pacifism. There's one woman in particular, a woman, uh, a former service woman called Muriel Curry. And she becomes a speaker of the League of Nations Union. She travels around the country giving lectures um, about pacifist politics. And she publishes in the Journal of the Old Comrades Association. She writes a lot about politic, League of Nations politics. She writes a lot about why women should become involved in pacifism, why it's so important for ex-servicemen in particular to campaign for pacifism. So I think... Two contrasting examples, but I think, again, you can see there how that experience of wartime service shaped the nature of their political involvement. So it kind of gave them a platform. These organisations gave women a platform to sort of engage in politics, to sort of become involved in political life. But that memory of wartime service is shaping what sort of campaigns they become involved with. And are there any examples of um, women's service during the Great War that had adverse uh, emotional and psychological impacts on them? So it's difficult, again, because the, the sources that I'm looking at are 
women who, so the women who become members of the old comrades associations, love their time in the service and want to celebrate it and want to remember the, po- the kind of positive experience of it. So I've not come across any specific examples of women who may have suffered. I think there probably was, but again, because these women went on the front line, I mean, most of these women were based in Britain. So they may have come into contact with service men who, you know, may have been psychologically traumatized, may have been injured, may have died, etc. Um, I'm not sure. I think for, for the most part, these women were sheltered from the worst horrors of the war. Um, I think in terms of an adverse emotional impact, I think, as I mentioned before, you know, I think that the most difficult thing for these women was adjusting to life after the war. I think the, the, the difficulty was accepting that the war had ended and that they had to readjust to, to civilian life and readjust to a society that was no longer telling them to, to volunteer and to become part of the, the women's forces, but was telling them that they should be content with a domestic life. I think that was the, the main kind of issue felt by most of these women rather than a kind of traumatic memory of their actual service. And finally, Jane, where can people learn more about your research? So I guess the Imperial War Museum would be the first place to go. I think if you're interested in service women, they've got, uh, the Imperial War Museum have got a huge archive um, called the Women's War Collection, Women's War Web collection sorry and they have uh, tons and tons of stuff not only on service women but also on uh, as i've said munitions workers nurses but they also have all the uh, archives of the old comrades associations there are also some online as well um so i'd probably anyone who's interested in this yeah head to the imperial war museum they've also got a lot of um a lot of information on service women in their uh, in their galleries and their exhibitions on the first world war jane thank you very much for your time thank you very much You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.